It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to talk with my guest today, actually talk with her again. Joining me is Barbara Weaver-Smith, who's been here once before, co-author of Whale Hunting, How to Land Big Sales and Transform Your Company, founder and CEO of The Whale Hunters, a consulting firm based in Arizona, and now, and most germane to the show, author of a new book, Whale Hunting with Global Accounts, Four Critical Sales Strategies to Win Global Customers. And we're going to talk about that today. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. I'm glad to be with you again. Well, it's nice to have you. So just in case somebody who's listening wasn't tuned in on episode 122 when you were here before, is may just take a minute, introduce yourself again and uh, tell us a little bit about your background. I'd be glad to. I've been working with small and mid-sized companies to help them grow in a fast way, particularly by selling big bigger deals to bigger customers. And the the kind of um, impetus for this book was the, the first book, Whale Hunting, was all about how to uh, learn to sell and service bigger deals. And so now my customers have done really well at that, and they have, uh, they have their own customers who are going global or who have become... Uh, already were global customers, but we're not really doing global business with mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. So that's what gave rise to this um, extension, I guess, or deeper dive, because we didn't anticipate that in the first book. Uh, I work with um, B2B companies exclusively. Mostly they're in the $10 million to $100 million annual revenue uh, they are all over the United States and um, in some Asian and European countries, although I only work with them in the U.S., at least I have so far. So we haven't gotten you on the airplane over to Europe and Asia? No, not to do business <laughs> there yet. So, yeah, those companies, $10 million to $100 million, they're not. those are not big companies by stretch of the imagination. No, so imagine, they're not. Imagine no. it's an interesting economic discussion that they have internally about, okay, can we afford to do business right. globally? And so how those discussions go? I mean, how do they reach the point where they decide, yeah, we've sort of mined and we're mining effectively what we can get closer to home, but yeah, there's these great opportunities that, that could be quite profitable overseas. Yeah. Um, let me give you an example. I work with a company in Kansas City, and they do what? Uh, all kinds of engineering services in the pharma industry. Mm-hmm. They work with 19 of the 20 largest pharmacies in the world. Virtually all their clients are global businesses. Mm-hmm. And so the same kind of work that they do for them in the U.S., that work is needed all over the world. And so it it doesn't make sense for them to continue to go after new companies in the U.S. 
instead of extending their reach with at least a few of the global companies they already have. And so the discussion is about how do they do that really in a strategic way. They're not going to do global business with all of those clients. They have to decide which ones they are most suited to. A couple of those clients are are doing um, global really global purchasing, making it more and more necessary mm-hmm. for all of their service providers to think about them globally or even their stateside business is going to be at risk in the future. And other companies that sell, they sell enterprise software. Uh, if you're a marketing company, anything, if you're a training company, anything you could sell that a company uses in a global sense, if you don't at least think about one or two or three of those companies as global clients, somebody else is going to do that. Right. And I think one of the the key decisions for companies as they continue to grow their revenues and they you know, have their own journey is, okay, how do we most cost-effectively attack these opportunities? Because there's a big difference between you know, getting on a plane, doing it yourself, signing up a distributor, a partner, a JV partner, and so on. You know, the, what are the <coughs> range of options that exist? So how are you working with companies or how are you advising them in this book to sort of approach that sort of first critical decision? Yeah, well, the first critical decision is to start thinking about it as early as you can, uh, really long before you do it. So, uh uh, one of the one of the things that gets in the way very early is if you have your sales force all organized into territories, you're going to have to get over that soon <laughs> uh, because it just doesn't hold up. Well, yeah, uh, especially for if you're lots at, of reasons. It doesn't right. even hold up if you're doing regional business, let alone global business. So you have to deal with that in some way. You have to deal with. Uh, compensation issues. And of course, the cloud is really um, messing around with all kinds of (laughs) compensation issues. Anyway, uh, the second thing is uh, you need to learn a lot more about channels. And I think that companies are, are just, it's part of the resurgence and the real growth uh, in recent years of uh, inside sales, I think lots and lots more use of um, selling through various media rather than all of the selling being done in face-to-face manner mm-hmm. or outsourcing of all kinds of um, service and delivery as well as sales. So, so the interesting question, though, is is I think that seems like the U.S. has embraced inside selling uh, more quickly and more broadly than a lot of other you know countries and yes. markets. So, yeah, how is it, how is that working in terms of you saying okay, cloud based is resurgence of inside sales? How is inside sales working in conjunction with your? entire sales team on capturing global customers? Well, some of the big companies that have done it, um, 
Uh, one of my contributors to the book um, used the example of Salesforce kind of starting out almost exclusively with uh, insight sales and then branching out with more uh, field sales. Other companies have done that as a model. So as, as you address customer, what you're saying is as you, because I start off really focusing on the SMB marketplace, small right. business. So mm-hmm. saying is as you go up the the grade in terms of the size and complexity of the opportunities you're taking on, then field sales becomes really what you have to integrate into the, your whole sales right, mix. Exactly. And, and if you have, as you grow, very closely integrated uh, inside sales and field sales teams uh, with the, the growth of all kinds of social media involved in building customer relationships the actual value of the face-to-face time is not the same as it once was. Part of it is really getting to understand your customer. By that, I mean all of the people that you deal with. Many of them would just as soon deal with you at least part of the time in a a Skype environment or a webinar environment or a telephone environment, not necessarily always a face-to-face environment. They may have many members of their buying team distributed in a lot of different places. And when they are a global organization, they are very used to having meetings and making decisions in all kinds of um, communication mechanisms that uh, involve distributed communication. Sure. Well, it's an interesting so, point because historically, and as someone who's done a tremendous amount of international business myself, is that you know, there's always been this, this idea that, gosh, outside the United States, there's certain countries and cultures where the relationship is valued much more deeply. It's much more of a, really a prerequisite to doing business. Um, Seems like you're saying that's changing. It is changing, and it's changing in different ways in different places. So um, the first chapter in my book is called You Don't Know Enough, and it, it just means that however much you know now, it's not enough. You don't know enough about the customer. You don't know enough about their global footprint, all of the companies that may be uh, part of who they are. I used the example of Novartis, which at the time I did a piece of research on them, they were actually 489 companies. And I made the claim that if you have a salesperson that's going to call on Novartis, if that salesperson worked for me, I wouldn't want them to go into anybody at Novartis until they actually had a handle on who are those 489 companies. Because otherwise, you you could have a stupid conversation with somebody. <laughs> you just, you just a, a, failed, a failed conversation, right. There, yeah, there are things you ought to know. What does it mean that, that they're that big? What does that big mean to you? And uh, you kind of ought to know what are the strategic issues um, in Novartis and their key subsidiaries around the world, and what does that mean for how they think and how they do business and what they're struggling with. So I'm, I'm getting a, a little outside, you know, the core question you asked me, but 
Um, you have to think about channels. You have to think about mitigating risk, which just when, when we were only talking about companies in the U.S., my advice was, you know, if you're, if you're trying to move out of your region, don't go to the East Coast and the West Coast at the same time. You know, pick, up, pick an area where you want to make your next mark and don't pick an area where it's going to take all your resources to go in too many different directions. Just go to one place and try to make a little bit of a mark there. Well, the same thing. Uh, would be true if you if you want to make a stab at going international. Pick one of your companies that you're already working with. Um, talk to them, learn from them, explore some of the channels. Uh, one one of the tips that I give in the book is that I believe that we all have in the United States we have what I call your your personal uh, foreign trade concierge. And that's the International Trade Administration of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Mm -hmm. One of the things that the U.S. government happens to do extremely well, in my opinion, and those offices are located, uh, several of them in every state, and they'll, they'll set up a trade mission for you. They'll introduce you to people. Um, they'll they'll teach you everything you need to know about actually how to do it, how to connect with people that can help you. So you can learn a lot that way, mostly well, free. Right. But I think to reinforce the point that you had made is that earlier, as you started talking about going global, you know, you didn't say, and I hopefully people caught this. She didn't say, well, choose that you want to go into Germany and go into a geographic area, you're saying, pick a company. Yes. Which is which is really an important distinction that's really different than how people were, may have been accustomed to doing international business you know, 10, 20 years ago, is, yeah, we're talking about, you know, this is all account-based. It's not, not geographic-based. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're going to learn. Right. Right. And it's, and it's as you said, is, is, yeah, you may be in going into cultures where that, personal relationship, hey, you need to go out and have drinks and so on is really important. But now, yeah, they've got accustomed to having distributed teams. They're getting on video conferences together and so on is that, yeah, that collaboration is models much different than it used to be. Exactly, exactly. And the, the deeper you get into a, a company, um, the more they will know your name and your reputation, even if you're you're dealing with new groups of people in every different location, but you can build a reputation in that company globally. The other thing I believe is if you're a small business competing with huge businesses, because you will be competing um with the IBMs or with the Accentures, and in some cases, if you're in a service business, if you're in a B2B service business, you can know as much or more than their people know. You can absolutely compete with them on what you learn and what you talk about. You can't compete with them in other resources, but you can compete with them in, in your own knowledge base and your team's knowledge base. Well, and that can be the, the key differentiator at the Absolutely. end of the day. I mean, I, just my own experience selling 
large complex communication yeah. systems overseas as working for a startup yeah we won we won multi-million dollar deals against much much larger competitors but yeah it's because actually we knew more than they did oftentimes yes because typically you're sending more seasoned more experienced people in to talk to the buyers than your really big competitors are um so you have you have kind of a built-in advantage as long as you use it. Most of most of the buyers in big companies who are in uh, high-level uh, management positions who who actually buy things, who buy big things, um, their biggest complaint about salespeople that they talk to is they never learn anything new. They spend most of their time in internal meetings with other people in their own company and they're just always looking for a new idea, fresh idea, fresh application. They don't want to hear about your stuff. They want to learn <laughs> something new about what they might accomplish to make a difference in their company. And so you need to know a whole lot about them, a whole lot about their strategy. And you need to know what's going on in the business world and how other innovations are going to come down the pike. Like the Internet of Things, you know, if you're in the um, sales business like we are, I mean, this stuff comes to us and we kind of have it on mind, but people in general don't have that in their mind yet. It's rattling in there somewhere, but it's not a big deal. Just like the cloud was not in kind of general awareness right, but very think of, long yeah. ago, yeah. probably still isn't. And it, it's just going to be such a radical transformation. And we have to know these things and be able to just give some really enticing examples of what, what they can do for people. Yeah, well, I think what you're you're talking about a couple of things. One is is as I understand is, is which I think are perfectly valid. Is one is is there's this whole idea of continuous learning, mm-hmm. which which is so important for sales. It, uh, even if you're not in global sales, the same idea of understanding your customers to a much deeper level and the environment that they're operating in mm-hmm. and what the things are going to influence their decisions. Are really important, and even if you're if you're selling to a company that's a ten million dollar company instead of a ten billion dollar company, the same considerations are taking place in their minds. Certainly, in the business owner, or the entrepreneur, the CEO that runs it. So, but we you have that same responsibility. You have to exactly. You have to have a broader world view. You have to you know sales is a thinking person's profession. Oh boy, it sure is. That's that's what this book turned out to be about. I mean. It, it really is. It, it kind of comes from Barbara, who used to be the, the English prof, you know. <laughs> it takes me back to the beginning of my career because that's, that's what it comes down to. And you're right, it's not just about being global, but it's about this, this isn't really a how-to book. It's about how to think seriously about your work. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think part of the second part I was going to talk about is is 
you know, the way you learn is by asking questions. Yes. And you have to be curious. So when you go and you talk to executives in a global corporation, it's, it's the same as if you're talking to somebody in a smaller corporation, is what are the questions that you can ask that are going to surface their aspirations, their objectives, their concerns mm -hmm. that you can then begin to address. And you have a point in the book you make about you know, too many um, you know, rep center meetings with senior execs, you know, basically only armed with their product knowledge. And right. this happens even in really large account selling, surprisingly. And yeah, yeah, you, you got to get past that. I mean, that's it, it, why I believe you have to know so much. And the way and, you, yeah, and the way you learn is questions. Exactly. So, first of all, you have to learn before you go in there. And here are the things that I always want to know. What's going on with their strategic plan? What's in the news about them? What are they trying to accomplish? I like to use, uh, I use Verizon as an example mm -hmm. a lot because everybody, everybody's heard of Verizon. You know, everybody knows what Verizon is up to, except um, maybe some people have noticed recently that Verizon has this new ad out about this little thing called Hum that yeah, you right. insert into your car and it it's kind of a um it's a diagnostic if something goes wrong and it gets it's you It's a help. teenage driver watcher is what it, it is. It is yes. exactly <laughs> among other things. Well, uh the backstory to that is Verizon has invested um million and a half dollars in a project with the University of Michigan on connected cars that drive on smart highways. And uh, so they are they are interested in um, the auto industry, the the um, driverless car mm -hmm. industry in very new ways. And uh, so when when I was looking at Verizon's website, they they have a big enterprise industry far beyond their their consumer industry. They do uh, technology that they call smart water for big corporations, and they have they have other kinds of uh, industrial products and services that you've never heard of. So. I would be armed with that knowledge, and then I would ask questions of the executives I was talking about. Where does your responsibility fall for these for these new ideas, these new strategies? What's your part of that? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you charged to deliver? What changes has that made in the direction you're going? Yeah, I like to find out what they care about. More yeah. than more than anybody else in the company. Yeah, Verizon has practically sold off all its towers. They don't own the towers anymore. They lease back the towers, mm -hmm. getting their capital for all these other kinds of investments. So you don't go in there and ask the questions like, "What's your pain point? You know, what's keeping you awake at night?" You have to know enough about their business and business in general. Ask a smart question that you really don't know the answer to, but you would have to know a lot about that company in order to ask it. 
and they will talk to you for an hour and think you are the smartest person that's come in there in a while. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the, <laughs> I'm laughing at when you say the pain point question because, oh, gosh, I'm so tired of that question. Yeah. It's such a pointless question. So, but it, it's, yeah, especially in a large account. So, right. yeah, continuous learning, great question. So, let's talk a little bit about the process you outlined in the book, too, as you know, you have one of your four key strategies as process. Yes. And I, I love that you, you acknowledge the fact that you know, the longer the buying process, you know, the less well-defined your sales process is going to be able to be. Right. And this is, you know, this is a problem for some companies that are trying to sell larger accounts that, you know, that they just can't sort of map out, you know, continue a, a sequence of steps to take them all the way to the end. Because at some point, as it gets longer, yeah, the it's sort of you're acting more by intuition, as you point out. Exactly. And usually... The steps are defined by your CRM. And you have, a, I gave some examples of CRM steps. And I wasn't meaning to make fun of CRM because I believe you have to have that. It's really important. But CRM has maybe seven or nine or 11 steps, you know, and there's something like most of them have a, you know, a first visit and a second visit. And then they will have, um, a presentation, and then they'll have a proposal, and then maybe they'll have a negotiation, and then they'll have a close. And Andy, you have sold complex accounts. You're going to probably have 40 meetings or 50 meetings between that second meeting and you're going to have 10 proposals or 20 proposal meetings and a lot of this is going to be over and over and over with different people and different sets of people. And it's going to be enormously complex. And every deal is going to be different. And you can't really capture it step by step anymore. And so the problem is when you use the steps as Many companies do. If they use the steps as a way to hold the sales team accountable for progress, then they're in a very bad way. If they use the steps as um, a way to try to measure the predictability of the outcome of that sale, they're fooling themselves <laughs> well that's true regardless of the size of the deal that is absolutely yeah true. and um if they if they use it as a way to train their sales team all the meat of what people need to be able to do is missing and that i believe this is really common in my experience it's really common especially with the size companies that I'm working with as they get into bigger deals, everything that the sales reps know about what to do next is outside of the CRM or outside of the formal sales process. And the better they know it or the more important it is to them, <clears throat> the more they're having to manage stuff on the side 
have a bazillion spreadsheets. They have notepads. They have uh, SharePoint documents, whatever. It's just the managing what they know is a huge, huge problem. And sharing what they know is impossible. Yeah, and I think that, and to a point you make in the book, is that that that's really driven by the fact that they're having the wrong perspective on the right perspective is that you have to look at from the buyer's perspective. You're trying to help them achieve their business objectives. And so, yeah, instead of having a process, you talk about having an account plan, which, which may seem like some of a quaint notion for some people, but it absolutely can be a great, great roadmap to how you're going to get a deal. Yeah. And these days I think, you should be considering a really intelligent um, technology-driven account plan of some of some kind. Mm-hmm. I have I have some that I like a lot um, that I rec- recommend Such as? people. Uh, I'm really fond of Revigy. Mm-hmm. There are some others that sit on top of Salesforce. I'm sure there will be other new ones coming along too. But these are these are dynamic. Um, they're a little bit hard to learn, and I can't say that salespeople fall in love with them. But if they stick with them long enough to get going, they're extraordinarily helpful because the Revigy at least is very very customer based. Yeah, and well, I think that yeah, you bring up some really good points in the book about. And this is a point that I've written about before too. Is that is that oftentimes, especially given the length of the sales process with large accounts, global accounts, is that by the time they get to the decision, that sometimes the factors that were driving the decision have become obsolete. Right. And part of that happens by just the mere fact of selling to them and educating them about what the options are, and that also contributes to that. Exactly. And then you have the. You have pre-sales people and sales engineers. And I, I probably I'm thinking mostly of uh, some of the account teams I've worked with that were working with some of the world's largest companies. They were mostly working with enterprise software. Um, that's probably my biggest, most recent accounts that I've coached. And they were with companies like Costco and CVS and Lego mm-hmm. and, I mean, enormous, gargantuan companies. And uh, these teams had eight or ten people at a time on the selling team. And they were not only responsible for one or more current deals. They were also responsible for future new deals with the same account. So they had people coming in and out of the account all the time and multiple deals at different levels of the deal. And so just to manage the information is an extraordinarily complex project. I mean, far more complex than you can just do with your CRM even if it's a really, really robust CRM. Right. So um, the industry needs a lot more work on that, I believe. I don't, I don't think we, we have the 
end of that yet. But I think that's one of the areas where a technology investment is a really good one. Um, because what you need to know and, and the ability to have it at your fingertips and bring people in and out. And of course, those deals take so long that you have so much turnover on the buyer's team and the seller's team. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Decision makers even come and go. Yeah, exactly. So um, now we got the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask guests. And... and um, Got just a few short ones here for you. So the first one is, we sorry, you can be, you know, short answers on these if you wish. So, in your mind, is it easier to teach a non, a non-sales technical person how to sell, or to teach a salesperson how to sell technically? Oh wow! It depends on who is the more curious person. <laughs> I've got my answer to that one. But <laughs> I think probably in most cases, it's easier to teach the salesperson to sell technically because it's not really about the product. It's about what you do with it. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. All right. So next question is, if you could change one thing about your business self, what would it be? Yes, I would have to learn to simplify the way I talk about things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I try hard. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, So what's one non-business book every salesperson should read? Non-business book. Oh, gee. Oh. Read uh, Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. You are an English professor. Okay. (laughs) Great book. It's a great book. (laughs) Challenging book. Uh, Okay, last question. So when you have to get away from it all, where do you go? Out in my backyard of the pool. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's a nice short trip. It you is. You don't have to fly there. a lot of years to get here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Well, Barbara, thanks again for being on the show. And how can people find out more about you and your new book? Well, they can come to my website, which is thewhalehunters.com. Or they can go to amazon.com and look at whale hunting with global accounts. Excellent. I encourage everybody to do that. Because even if you're not selling global accounts, there's some great lessons in there about managing and working with bigger accounts that apply as well. So very much worth your time. And thank you again for being on the show. Thank you so much, Andy. I really enjoyed it as I did last time. Oh, great. Thank you. And remember, friends, Make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. An easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, listening in on your commute, in the gym, or making it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Barbara Weaver-Smith, who shared her expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. 
Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.